the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may be able to cross from there to us. And he said to them, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they may, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we need your help, especially a passage as terrifying as this one. Lord, give us your spirit. Remind us of who you are. Help us to understand and to hear with ears of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So during our preview services, we've been meeting once a month as a church And uh, we've been going through the parables of Jesus. And so as Easter was upon us, I thought, well, there's got to be a parable that mentions the resurrection. We'll just go with that one. And so we chose this passage, and then I read it a little more closely, and I thought, okay, this is going to be an interesting message for Easter morning. Because it mentions the resurrection, but it's more of a terrifying passage than one of celebration. At least that's how we read it at first. And sometimes, actually, if we read this and we don't give much thought beyond an overview of what it says, we might even be tempted to imply that the message of this parable is that uh, rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That to be rich is sinful and to be poor is morally upright. Uh, We need to reject that understanding of this passage for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, uh, Abraham in this passage was one of the richest men in all of Scripture, and he is the one who is representing paradise, the place of rest, the place for those who belong to the Lord. So there's nothing inherently bad about rich people, but actually there's a bigger context in which Jesus always tells these parables. And we need to understand who is he getting at? Is he just talking about rich people in general, or is he talking about particular type of person. Just earlier in this chapter, uh, in Luke 16, verses 13, 14, and 15, we get a, a sense of why he tells this story. Here's what Jesus says as he's talking to the Pharisees. No, one can, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
So as he's talking to these people, there are, there are those who have divided hearts, who want to seek after money and wealth and prosperity and also the Lord. And you can do that to a certain extent, but ultimately one of them will become almighty, the one that you serve more than the other. And the Pharisees heard this. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. So Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus has these interactions with the Pharisees oftentimes of them having their outward self-justification and juxtaposing that with justification that comes from God. True faith from the heart. And those who want to serve God and money, those who love money, are seeking to justify themselves. Money is the thing that makes them safe. Money is the thing that gives them identity. Money is the thing that gives them, makes them who they are. And so Jesus is talking about self-justification versus God's justification. The way in which we can stand our identity. Is it in God or is it in something else? Further on in Luke, just a chapter later, uh, chapter 18, we have the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. It says this, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He told this parable to those who were self-righteous. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee in his prayer is very religious. He's God-focused, but what he's doing is making a case for why he is good enough. Look what, what I did. When the basket was passed, I put a whole bunch of money in there. I fast. I don't do all those terrible things like that guy over there. I'm good enough. I don't need anybody's help. Self-justification is a form of idolatry. It dethrones God and puts us in his place. And so Jesus is telling this parable in the context of these stories, right? These interactions with the Pharisees, those who were lovers of money, who justified themselves, who are ridiculing what he's telling them about the kingdom of heaven. And that helps us understand this passage a bit more. Let's look now at our characters from our parable. There's really two that start out. We have this, there's two sections to this parable. The first one is uh, the rich man and Lazarus and their life on earth. And then it transitions in the second half to really Abraham and the rich man. 
in the afterlife. So verse 19, there was a rich man. You said also be translated, there was a certain rich man. There's this one rich guy, not all rich people, but this one rich man. And how rich is he? Well, we are told he is clothed in purple. Now, there was only a couple ways to make purple cloth in the ancient world, and they were both tremendously expensive. If you are familiar with the book of Acts, Lydia is one of the people who helps fund the early church. She was a seller of purple cloth. It was a lucrative industry, but to own purple clothing would have been to be an extravagantly dressed person. A typical person in the first century had two garments, an undergarment and an overgarment, like a cloak. And when they needed to wash, the, you know, that's just all they had. They didn't have change of clothes. They didn't have gym clothes for Planet Fitness. They just had two clothes, two sets of linens. They were likely a nice brown color, beige khakis. But this man, dressed in the most fancy of clothes... And fine linen, which is a way of saying his underwear was really nice too. Even underneath the extremely extravagant clothing he wore on the outside, he had those silk boxers. No expense spared on what he wore, and we're told that he feasted sumptuously. To have the means to have this feast every day, a seven-course meal, likely with all of his friends and relatives in his house, not just on his birthday, not just on Thanksgiving or Easter, but every single day. Only an extremely rich man would be able to gorge himself on this type of food every single day. And part of the mind of a Pharisee at this time was to see a rich man like this, somebody who had all of this wealth and power, and think, this man is blessed. Look at what the Lord has blessed this man with. Look at his clothes, blessed. His fine linen, blessed. His feasting, blessed. Truly, the Lord has shown favor on this man. The prosperity gospel is nothing new existed at the time of Jesus and it exists in our time that somehow we can understand our standing before God by material possessions, by our social order. And there's this great contrast that Jesus is making between the rich man and Lazarus. And here we have the description in verse 20 of the poor man. At his gate was laid a poor man. So this poor man was not even able to bring himself to the gate of the rich man. And also notice the rich man's house is so nice that it has a gate at it. So some likely town people had come across this poor man and had mercy on him, not being able to take care of himself, take care of them with their own means, thought, well, maybe we should bring him to the rich man's house and he might be able to help him out. This would have been the common practice at the time of Israel. There weren't homeless shelters, there weren't food stamps, there wasn't wick. Somebody like this who has injured and unable to work, who has become poor, they were at the mercy of those who had, who had been blessed. That they would 
know that they had received such generous blessing that they would overflow into caring for those who were needy among the people of Israel. And so that's what these men did. We're going to bring him to the rich man and lay him at his gate. This rich man socially was obligated to help him, although we don't get any sense that he did in this story. And his name is Lazarus. The rich man doesn't get a name, even though that's pretty important if you're rich, powerful, to have a name. No, the poor man gets a name, and his name is Lazarus. And the name Lazarus, this is the key for us to understanding this story. His name is the one whom God helps. And you read that, you hear the story as Jesus is telling it, and you think, that's the guy who God helps? The crippled guy who's poor? Sure doesn't seem like God's helping him very much. We're told he's covered in sores. This man is sickly. Somebody we would probably even avoid had we seen him lying on the street. And he came desiring to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The stuff he's going to throw away anyways after his feast. Typically food that would have been given to the dogs. Lazarus is laid at the gate that he might have some dog food from the rich man. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, when we think of dogs, we just got a puppy. It's a labradoodle. And we pick him up, and he's like biting your face and licking you, and he's man's best friend. That's not what dogs were like at the time of Jesus. They were the dirtiest animal around. If they weren't feral and out scavenging for the things out on the edge of town, they were maybe trained to be guard dogs, but they were like the most despised animal around. Think of it more as a rat. I don't know about you, anytime I see a picture of like this huge rat with that nasty tail, I'm so glad I don't live in New York or wherever those guys live. But the dogs, they come and they lick their sores just as a dog would lick his own sores. And so here Lazarus is being portrayed as like one of the dogs, wanting to eat the food that's for the dogs, being licked by the dogs. It's a sad state of affairs for this poor man. And the contrast between the rich man and all of his opulence and the poor man and his utter helplessness is strong, striking. poor man, he dies. Lazarus dies and he's carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Hey, it worked out for him after all. Even though maybe this rich man would have viewed himself as blessed and someone like Lazarus as cursed, we find out that the poor man gets to go to heaven. Abraham's side. Another way to to understand this is Abraham's bosom. When people ate in the, in the old world, they laid on their side at tables. And the person right in front of you, if you were the host, was the most important. This is a scene from the Last Supper. John lays his head back 
on Jesus' breast. He's in the place of honor. He is there close to Abraham at this feast after life has ended. He is finally delivered from his plight, and he is in the place of comfort. Awesome. And the rich man, he died, and he went to heaven too. No. He was buried. It doesn't look like Lazarus was buried. He was probably thrown into a common grave. This man, no doubt, had an extravagant funeral. Lots of people knew he died, but he ends up in Hades. Traditionally, this is a word that's translated as hell. And being in torment, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So stop for a moment. Imagine that you are this rich man. All of your wealth and your fine clothing. You've lived this extravagant life of just gorging yourself on all of the best things. Always buying the next pair of Jordans. Always driving a Lamborghini. Whatever. However we can translate that into our own context. Bacon wrapped everything. But you had a hard heart. You despised Lazarus. You overlooked him. You didn't care for him as you ought to have. You thought that you were all self-sufficient, self-justified, in need of no one's help. And you find yourself in hell and you look up and you see Lazarus in heaven. And what would you say to Lazarus? Well, a repentant man might say, Lazarus, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I overlooked you. How could I have done that? Clearly, I was wrong and you have been vindicated from my mistreatment. That's what repentance would have looked like. I was wrong and God is just. No, that is not what he says. Instead, he calls out to Father Abraham and he says, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in some water to cool my tongue because I am in anguish in this flame. Now, no doubt this man does not want to be where he is at. He is regretting this fact that he is there. He wants deliverance from his suffering. But notice what he does. He doesn't even address Lazarus. In fact, he makes Lazarus into a servant. Hey, Abraham, I know that Lazarus guy. Just send him. He still thinks he's more important than Lazarus. Even though he's finding himself in the place of torment and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. He has shown no true signs of repentance. His heart is still hard, even in the midst of this terrible, terrible scene. Abraham responds, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. It's recapping what happened earlier. And besides all of this, besides that, besides what you did in your life and he did in his life, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would want to pass from here to you may not be able And none may cross from there to us. Even if Lazarus wanted to bring him a bottle of water, he just couldn't. It's too late. It's too late for the rich man. The chasm has been fixed. There was this great chasm between them and their lives of his extravagant wealth and Lazarus's poverty. 
And there could have been something to bridge the gap. But here they find themselves and their fates have been set. And here we have the rich man who was so all-sufficient, having anything he wanted all the time, every day. And he himself has turned into a beggar, pleading with Abraham for a drip of water. Abraham can't do it. He says, it's too late. We can't even give you a drop of water. And he says, well, fine then. I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So once again, he is not wanting to be here. He doesn't want his brothers to be here. And yet we still see no signs of true repentance. Look at how he's continuing to treat Lazarus. Oh, he can't come and bring me water. We'll just send him back to my brothers. The rich man still thinks he's in charge. His heart is still hard. He doesn't understand. He views himself as God. Abraham says to him in rebuttal, well, they have Moses and the prophets. That's, that's a way of saying they had the Bible. Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, Habakkuk. They have all of the word of God available to them. They went there each week into the synagogue to hear it explained. If they're going to repent, let them just go to church and hear, and that they might respond in faith. The rich man replies back, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then we really see the pride of the rich man in that sentence. The rich man is correcting Abraham's theology. Look, Abraham, you don't understand how this works. You know what? You think that they just need to hear the Bible, but I'm telling you, Abraham, I know how it works better than you, even though you're in heaven and the patriarch of all of Israel. If somebody comes back from the dead, they'll listen. The pride of his heart continues forward. Abraham responds, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. And we have the resurrection. And the person telling this story to the Pharisees with their hard hearts, their lovers of money, all of their self-sufficient mindset, Jesus is telling them about himself. They've rejected him time and time again. Every time they saw him do a miracle, he even raised a different man named Lazarus from the dead. And when they saw it, they didn't respond in faith and repentance. Instead, it hardened their hearts and they went on how to plot and kill him. And Jesus himself is going to come back from the dead. And they didn't believe him when he was preaching from Moses and the prophets. And when he comes back and he reveals himself for over a month to hundreds of people publicly, they are still not going to believe him. Because the issue isn't one of evidence. 
when I came to faith in Christ in college, somebody that was close to me was kind of becoming more of an atheist. And we had some spirited discussions, no doubt. And one of the things I remember him telling me was, why doesn't God just write his name on the wall and say, I am here? Then I would believe. I'm sure you've heard similar things in your life. If God doesn't, wouldn't he just do this and then I'll believe? And certainly God could shoot a lightning bolt and write on the wall. But that's not how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. God has chosen to reveal himself through Moses and the prophets and the gospels and the epistles in his word given by his messengers and to Require God to do something according to you is to dethrone him and to put you in the place of God. Well, I'm going to tell God what to do. And if he does it, then I'll believe in him. It's that same pride of the heart. There's no evidence that will be sufficient. No profound miracle has the ability to unilaterally change someone's heart. Genuine faith comes through hearing the word of God. Because that is what God has ordained. That is how he has decided as the means through which he will draw people to himself. It's a shocking passage. One of the applications is that if Jesus showed up right here and we had a hard heart, we wouldn't even believe him. But I think there's some takeaways for us as we think about this. As the people who hopefully don't see ourselves as Pharisees and lovers of money and all of these things. First of all, there's a change in what we want from Scripture. Oftentimes we want just practical life tips. How can I be successful? What are the five biblical principles to a healthy marriage? We want like the BuzzFeed Bible. Just like, let me scroll through the top ten and I'm good. We want our practical everyday needs met, and that's not a bad thing to do. But it seems that oftentimes we forget about our ultimate need. Our ultimate need, that there's a paradise to pursue, and that there's a hell to avoid. That there's judgment that we are like the rich man and if we die and we aren't justified by God, we will be like him. We don't concern ourselves with this type of talk very much. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we do that. One, I think we have a really skewed view of what heaven is truly like. Right? We, We have this image from our culture of You know, a naked baby on a cloud with wings playing a harp. I don't want to do that. Or is heaven like having to sit in church for like, man, how long is he going to talk? Eternity? I don't want that. We don't truly look forward to being with the Lord because we don't have a full grasp and understanding of who he is. Think about these images of what the new heavens and the new earth are truly going to be like. 
There's going to be a great multitude for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's going to be a party. 10,000 by 10,000. So many people, you won't even be able to count them. We, as his church, are going to be participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb, being united to Jesus. It's going to be a marriage feast. And if we know anything about Jesus, he's bringing some good wine. But ultimately, it's being with the Lord. Do we truly want to be with him? I mentioned earlier, when people come into his presence, they fall on their faces. Think of all of the people who have even gotten a glimpse of God in Scripture. Moses has to hide in the crack of a rock, and he's like, oh, I saw his backside. Isaiah comes in to see this vision of the Lord high and lifted up. He's like, I've seen the Lord. But really, all he saw was the edge of his robe. God is so holy, so marvelous, so magnificent, so transcendent and great and mighty and powerful and on and on any superlative you can come up with. We can't even look at him. Moses came into his presence and his face was so bright afterwards he had to wear a mask because it was too blinding for other people to see the reflection of God's presence. But we're told that in heaven we will see God face to face. An unthinkable reality. We also have misconceptions about what hell is like. We often think it's going to be full of people who don't want to be there because they're truly repentant. That if they could change their circumstances, they would want to worship the Lord. And though they do not want to be there, we are told in this passage that their hearts do not change. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, like, I don't want to go to heaven. All my friends are going to be in hell anyways. Yeah. But you all think you're God there. And you're going to consume one another. They regret being there, but they are still the center of their own universe. This parable begs the question to us, are we like the rich man? Are we like the rich man? Money isn't a bad thing. It's a gift. It's a resource. It's something we can use. The rich man made it into his God, became his primary identity. It's his name, Rich. We all find our identity in different things. We're supposed to find our identity in Christ. But it's the things that are often even good that we have that can blind us to God's grace. It might be that we've earned some degrees. Right? We went to college and grad school, PhD. We might have a successful job or business. We might have wealth. These things that can be good can become idolatrous when we put them in the place of God in our lives. They can blind us. They, they can cause us to say things like, well, I know it all. You wouldn't say that to yourself, but, you know, you come across as a know-it-all. I got a degree. I don't need you to tell me about 
how it really works, Abraham. I got it figured out. I'm going to be fine. I got, I got my house and I got my car and I got my labradoodle. Got my good job. Things are going good. I get to go to the lake on the weekend. I don't need anybody to help me. The rich man didn't need anybody to help him. I mean, just think about our interactions we have. Hey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. You're actually terrible. But you just tell people, I'm good. I'm doing good. Even though I just had a breakdown in the car on the way here. Can I help you with that? Nah, it's good. I can get it. We're prideful people. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want people to help us. It's not the American way. So really the question is, are we like the rich man? Or do we need help? Like Lazarus. Can't even walk. He can't even have his wounds tended to, except for a dog comes and licks it. Do we view ourselves as ones who are good enough, who can stand and say, yeah, I'm able. I got it. I got this under control. Or are we like those who know we can't stand, that God is too holy, that we are too needy and wicked, that too often we put things in the place of God that shouldn't be there. Lazarus doesn't do anything in this passage, by the way. He just lays there and he dies. But he's the one whom God helps. He's the one whom God helps. We need to be the people whom God helps. And it should inform everything about who we are. Not claiming to be good enough like the Pharisees did. Hey, I know the Bible. Don't tell me about it, Jesus. I know how to deal with my money, Jesus. Jesus says, no, you need help. You need help. We all need help. We need the work of the Spirit in our hearts to give us renewal, to lead us to repentance, to foster in us humility. And how do we have that happen? Where do we go? Do we go to the magic man? No. We go to Moses and the prophets. We go to what God has said about himself. The message has never been hidden. The evidence has never been diminished. We just sometimes are unwilling to listen. Now, this is Easter Sunday. It's kind of a sobering message. But it doesn't have to be. If we are like Lazarus, if we feel ourselves to be those who need help, we have a place to go for that help. That is what Easter is all about. That is why we call our church Resurrection. Because like the rich man, we are all on this path to death. And like the rich man, without any intervention, we're going to find ourselves in a place we don't want to be. But one came. The word of God himself came. And he lived the perfect life we couldn't. And he died the sacrificial death that we deserved. And the torment that we deserved. And he rose to life so that we can have his resurrection life. 
I'm not very good at bringing myself back to life when I die. I need help. We all need help. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, but God can make us alive in Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. Not that we were great and God chose us because of that, but that we were miserable sinners and God has helped us. Do you need help? I know I do. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your help today in everything. We often try to justify ourselves with all sorts of corruptible, meager things. But true life is found in your Son. And we need that life. We need your Spirit to enliven us that we might be able to see you face to face. What a glorious thought. Give us this help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.